Hello, and welcome to Pragmatic Live, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. My name is Rebecca Caligeris. I am the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you today, host for today's event. Before we get started, a couple of housekeeping items. First, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the slides will be available after today's event. You'll be able to access them at pragmaticmarketing.com slash live starting tomorrow, and we'll send you out an email with a link to the recording as well. Second, questions. We love questions. And it turns out there's been a little bit of a change to the interface on here. So if you look at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see a series of round icons, one of which has an ellipse, the fancy name for the three dots. If you click on that, you can select Q&A, and then a box will appear on the right of your screen. And if you do all of that, it will be well worth it, as you can enter any and all questions, and we'll get through as many as possible at the end of today's event. Now, many of you are already familiar with Pragmatic Marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for nearly 25 years. So generally, we dig into a different box on the framework here each month during our webinar series. But this time, we're doing something a little bit different. We're not covering one of the boxes on the framework. We're covering the magic behind all the boxes, the thing that makes all those boxes really come to life strong product teams. And helping us tackle this topic is Kirsten Butso, pragmatic instructor, product coach, and former vice president of product management and product marketing at such industry leaders as Fujitsu, Pearson, Blackboard. She has built and taught product teams around the world. She's seen the good, the bad, the ugly, and today she's going to share four steps all of us can do to build high-functioning teams. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I always am very excited for the opportunity to join you and to just talk about whatever's going on in the industry. But I'm going to confess right off the bat, this is a topic that I am particularly passionate about, and that is creating high-functioning teams. Um, and the reason that I'm so passionate about it is you alluded to it in the, in the opening, and that is we very often think about, you know, tools and techniques and testing and things we can do to build really, really fantastic products. But the reality of the situation is this. Our business actually depends on the ability of our employees to work together to identify products people want to buy and bring them to market successfully. It all starts with people. And so to get the goals that we want, to achieve the goals that we're striving to achieve, we actually have to have teams of people that are going to plan the work, are going to execute the work um, that actually needs to be done. And, you know, I, I, as, you, as you indicated, I travel far and wide, and I have yet to meet a group of people that I work with that doesn't want to be part of a high-functioning team. Everybody wants to be part of a high-functioning team that brings great ideas together and delivers them successfully to the market so we can sit back and enjoy company success together. However, it's not, not so fast. It's not so easy. Um, unfortunately, there are some challenges, right? And the challenges are this. Product teams are made up of people with different roles. Uh, we've got product managers. We've got developers. We've got designers. We've got marketers. 
and everybody's speaking their own language, everybody has their own acronyms, everyone has their own opinions, their own agendas, their own methodologies, their own processes. Um, and very often what starts to happen is instead of functioning as a collective whole, it looks a little bit more like this. It looks a little bit more like we're herding cats. And we find it sometimes a little bit hard to get traction together as a team. And what's happening is this. All of that variability that we find across groups, it creates confusion. And it starts to feel a little bit like the decisions that we're making as an organization tend to become based on who has the highest rank or who has the loudest voice within our organizations versus leaning on our customers to inform the choices that we make. And we know this is, is, is pretty true because every year Pragmatic Marketing does an annual survey. Um, we interview uh, thousands, actually thousands of people in the industry, product managers, product marketers, the best and the brightest, and they give us feedback on everything you can possibly imagine. But what's really fascinating to me is 70% of our respondents from that survey indicate to us that they want to increase strategic focus in their roles. They want to be more strategic in their roles. Yet 65% feel like their product roadmap is guided by random opinions. And that's often a byproduct of, those, of that confusion and that variability we see. And when we lack strategic focus and we start to defer to opinions, each department has a tendency to isolate. They have a tendency to isolate in their silo of expertise, talking about the things they know about, using language they know about, and doing great work within their silo. But then what happens is it gets tossed over a wall to the next group and tossed over the wall to the next group, and tossed over the wall to the next group, et cetera. And you'll notice this doesn't leave any room for feedback amongst silos, and it doesn't leave any room certainly for any type of customer validation. And so all of a sudden we can start to see how hard this actually is. And the problem is the result when we kind of live in our silos is we stagnate because we kind of tend to do the same work with the same people in the same way, and we become very, very inward focused with our, our little universe. We, we're kind of like little turtles within each one of those groups or each one of those sections. And when we stagnate and isolate within our individual groups, what happens is our perspectives start to stagnate. And invariably, that bleeds over into our products. Our products start to stagnate as well. Having great ideas is obviously important when it comes to building remarkable products. However, if we don't have effective teams to execute our product strategy, success is really, really hard to achieve. And, and we might get some success, but it's going to be limited. It's not going to be nearly as much uh, as we wanted. Um, work doesn't magically happen. Only by creating a high-functioning team can we actually unleash our full potential. And so uh, what I want to do today is I want to share with you, you know, some trials and tribulations of somebody who's kind of been there, done that. I can tell you 
uh, as a product executive who's been working in, in technology product management for over 25 years now. I've worked with hundreds of clients, right? I've been a product executive. I've worked with hundreds of clients. i faced this situation more times than I actually probably want to admit. And so when you asked me to tackle this topic today, I thought what I would do is I would boil it down to the four key challenges that I think inhibit our ability to have a high-functioning team. Uh, and then I thought we would just tackle each one of these challenges. So one of the first challenges that we very often face is we don't have a shared future. In other words, we don't really know uh, where we're heading together as an organization or as a team, and that inhibits our teamwork as well. Uh, we're talking those different languages. Every discipline within the organization has their own vocabulary, and when we all speak just our own language, it's very, very hard to communicate with each other. We don't really have great uh, organizational alignment. Very often we haven't clearly articulated where one role starts, where one role stops, how these roles interconnect with one another. And so everybody kind of does their own thing, but we're not really uh, interacting super effectively together with one another. And our priorities are unclear. I, I have yet to go out and work with an organization where somebody tells me they don't have enough work to be done. Everybody's got more work than time, energy, and resources. And so inevitably, we need to prioritize that work. What should be at the top of the list? What should be at the bottom of the list? Well, if we are running our business based on random opinions, it's really, really hard to know what should be at the top of the list, what should be at the bottom of the list. And unfortunately, it has a tendency to change pretty frequently. And so what I want to do is I want to tackle each one of these challenges, because I think if you can tackle these four key challenges, it's going to go a long way to helping you become a high-functioning team. So the first one that I want to dig into is that, that shared future. Why a shared future is so important. If you don't have a shared understanding of what your future looks like, what your vision is, what your reason for being is as an organization, it's really, really hard to know how to calibrate building great products in fulfillment of that vision. And I think it's really important to note that the products that you build aren't your vision. Those products that you're building, that's in fulfillment of your vision. That's in fulfillment of your future. But it's the means to the end. And so very often we get so deep in the trench thinking about the products that we're building that we forget to pop our heads up and think about, yeah, but what's our true north? What's our compass? What is it that we're trying to do that's really going to keep us on track? And we know that this is a, a problem across the industry because, quite honestly, not to be all doom and gloomy here, but uh, we, we, we know failure rates are really, really hard. The stuff that we're doing, it's tough. 75% um, of venture-backed firms don't return investors' capital. 96% uh, of all innovations fail to return the, t the cost of capital. 92%, let that sink in, 92%, 92% of startups fail within three years. And everybody thinks it's not going to happen to me, but that's a pretty high statistic. And if you think being part of an established organization makes you immune, you probably want to rethink that. Because 95% of new products launched by established companies each year fail. And there was a study done by uh, CB Insights. And what they discovered was this. The number one reason for these 
failures are that 42% lack a market need for their product. In other words, we're building products that people don't want. We're building products to solve problems in the marketplace that don't exist. Maybe we're enamored with our ideas and we fail to think about the fact that um, it's important to understand what the problem is that we're solving in the marketplace first. And so those are sobering statistics. And I, I spent some time after I looked at those statistics wondering, well, why exactly does that happen? Uh, and I, I, I looked back to my past, right? I kind of reflected on my entire career. And I realized, you know, it's kind of not surprising. It's kind of not surprising because I think for me, uh, that started when I got my undergraduate degree. So I have an undergraduate degree in marketing and I have my MBA. And I can tell you every single marketing class I've ever had, the foundation of that class was based on the marketing mix or the four P's of marketing. So right off the bat, we've institutionalized this concept of thinking inwardly because that's what the marketing mix is. The marketing mix fundamentally is all about us. It's very inward focused. Um, we build our products or we think about great ideas and we build products from those great ideas and we price our products and we promote our products and we place our products. And I like the four Ps and they're important and we have to understand them and we have to execute against those effectively. But again, the problem is the four Ps are inward focused. So right off the bat, when we uh, formally educate people who are going to be the future marketers and the future product leaders um, in the world, we're giving them this foundation that says, hey, look inward, start inward, think inward. And when we think inward, it doesn't really create a shared future. And so what I would recommend you do to start tackling this particular challenge or this particular problem is to add a foundational building block to the four Ps. Uh, and that would be a very, very, very clear understanding of the problem that you're solving in the marketplace. Every successful product, every successful service, every successful solution that we put into the marketplace has to solve a problem. If we don't solve a problem and we as an organization don't have an abundance of clarity around that problem that we're solving, we simply can't have a shared future. And we've already put ourselves in the position where we're being inward. We set ourselves up to work in those silos. And when we're working in those silos and we have an inward perspective because we bypass that foundation of understanding the problem, we reinforce our perspective. And so we've really got to start with understanding the problem. Problems define your shared future. Without this critical cornerstone, we set that tone for being an inward-focused, dysfunctional team versus an outward, customer-focused team that has a shared future against which we can all calibrate our team's success and our team's actions. In other words, we focus on our present products, our technologies, and our features versus understanding the who and the what 
of the problem we should solve to create value in the market to guide our future. Um, and so what I want to do to just kind of uh, hit this point home is I want to play a short video of a client that we had at Pragmatic Marketing who can really help you understand how deeply you can broaden your offerings and how you can really drive success and growth within your organizations if you do in fact start with an understanding of the problem first. So give me a moment here and I'm going to bring up the video. I go back with pragmatic marketing a long time. I've put it in every company I've ever been in, every acquisition I've ever done. Uh, we have added pragmatic marketing as our foundation for how we approach product management. When I joined Frontline, we were 65 people and uh, just about $20 million in revenue. Uh, I'm here four years now. We're a little over 300 people. We've gone from one product uh, to 12 products. Uh, we've done three acquisitions uh, and continue to grow profitably. We should start by identifying the problem. What is unique about what pragmatic marketing brings is the focus on the market. And then the second part is differentiating between data and opinion. Frontline is in the business of providing human capital management software. We were starting to grow from a one-product company into a multi-product company. When you start to build multiple products, you need to understand different buyer personas. You need to understand uh, how do you start to relate multiple products together. And so one of the first things we did is understand, well, what is the market problem? Uh, recognize that our products today solved about this much of a market problem that was this big. Recognizing that gave us the direction for what to invest in for the subsequent products in terms of how they interrelated. To me, without that pragmatic marketing approach to come in and understand the problems, uh, we wouldn't have gotten to an understanding of the depth of the problem and the breadth of the problem as quickly uh, as we otherwise would have. Pragmatic marketing is one of the pieces of the glue that helps keep that culture together that keeps us focused on solving customer problems and what are the important problems to solve. Because um, there's lots of customer problems, but which ones actually create value? So I think that's just a really great example of how problems can really inform the things that we're doing in a profound way. Because as Frank articulated, if we, if we give ourselves a broader window versus a narrow window, all of a sudden we can drive exponential growth within our business. And so that's really the first challenge that we're going to tackle, is how to solve those problems in the marketplace to create or drive that shared future, that shared vision as an organization. So the next thing that I want to talk about, the next challenge that I want to tackle is our need to develop a common vocabulary. So right off the bat, uh, I'm going to shamelessly uh, promote and give a shout out to my uh, German teacher. So I speak German and I started learning German in high school. And my high school German teacher was a woman by the name of Frau Gaylord. And what I can tell you is this, Frau Gaylord was very, very passionate about vocabulary lists. She gave us vocabulary lists every week. We were drilled on vocabulary. We had to learn vocabulary. We had to get quizzed on vocabulary every single week. And the reason that she did that is she knew then in order for us to actually learn how to speak that foreign language and how to communicate in that language, we had to have a vocabulary or we simply couldn't do it. 
And it's not actually dissimilar from what we face in our roles, particularly when every part of the organization or every part of the team is speaking a different language. Um, and then we compound that if our employees are working in isolated teams without a shared future that's informed by our customers. Um, and I just saw somebody gave me a shout out in German and questions there. Sorry, it distracted me for a moment. Uh, it's going pretty well. I, I thank you very much for the. Um, it's very, very difficult to create a common language when everybody's in their own silos. Um, it is literally as though, you know, if you've ever traveled in a foreign country and you don't speak the language and you don't have a vocabulary that you can draw from in order to communicate effectively, you will know that it's just success can't really happen. And so what we need to do is we need to elevate our conversation, our vocabulary beyond our silos, beyond our individual work expertise, and we need to move it up to a meta level within the organization. And so one of the things that you can do is you can start to blueprint what that common vocabulary will look like. Now I will tell you the blueprint that I'm gonna share with you today happens to be the Pragmatic Marketing Blueprint. Um, I'm picking that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I used it. I used it when I was a Vice President of Product Management and Marketing in, in, in several companies. And uh, I found it to be the most effective and the most successful. I don't want your takeaway from this uh, conversation to be that it has to be the pragmatic marketing framework, but what I am saying is it's an incredibly uh, effective tool that's gonna start to step us through this blue, blueprint that I'm gonna articulate to you. And the reason that I find it to be super effective is because it starts with an understanding that, uh, of this. Um, when we start to create a common vocabulary, when we start to create a common language within our organization, it's important to know that the work that we're getting done, the vocabulary that we have to leverage to get that work done, is going to span a continuum. It's going to span a continuum from strategic work that needs to be done to execution-based work that needs to be done. Um, and so that's the first thing that we want to know. The next thing we want to think about is this. Along that spectrum are categories of work that needs to be done. So starting on the left, things like do we have work related to understanding our market? Uh, does that market understanding drive focus into our business? Does that focus uh, inform our business decisions? Do those business decisions inform the planning activities we need to do to start moving into taking that strategic work and converting it into that execution-based work, right? So now we know what we're supposed to be doing. Let's plan for the stuff that we should be doing. And now let's think about the programs we're gonna develop to drive that execution. Let's think about how we're going to leverage those programs for organizational readiness and enablement. And then let's make sure that we're not done when we put products into the marketplace. We also, make, we also have the things we need to do to be successful from a support perspective. And the reality of the situation is if we don't start to create a common understanding of this spectrum, we don't have a great foundation to start creating that common vocabulary.
because once we have this spectrum of understanding in place, we can add those specific activities that need to be done so we can leverage a uniform understanding to drive the conversation. And we start to break down the walls. Think about it like this. Um, there's a lot of different activities uh, that happen to present here, and this happens to be the pragmatic marketing framework. But regardless of the, the form of these activities, these are the activities that need to be completed to be successful when you market and you manage your technology product. And if we don't have a uniform understanding of what each one of these activities means, and we're not speaking language in our organization, it's really hard to get traction. So the example I want to think about is this. If I were to go into what their definition of win-loss analysis was, my guess is, is I'm going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 different answers because everybody comes to the conversation with a different frame of reference, a different experience, a different knowledge base. And so think about it. We walk into a meeting and we're talking about win-loss analysis and everybody brings their different definition in. If we haven't level set that, every one of those meetings is going to be like Groundhog Day because we have to spend a significant amount of time all getting on the same page first before we can advance. How great would it be if we just walked into that meeting with a uniform understanding already? Now all of a sudden we're getting ready to foster and facilitate better teamwork and we're putting ourselves in position to drive velocity into our organization. Hello, Pragmatic Live listeners. Want more original, award-winning content from Pragmatic Marketing? Visit pragmaticmarketing.com and subscribe today. But here's where it gets really cool. You'll notice in that upper left-hand corner is that market problems box. I want to go back to that first challenge that we had of not having a great shared future. All of a sudden, I can tie that shared future challenge that we tackled by understanding the problem that we're solving, and I can use that market data to illuminate or inform all those other activities that need to be done that we now have as a common vocabulary, that we all now have as a uniform understanding of what we're going to do, and all of a sudden, we've just cleared a lot of overhead off of, out of our organizations because we all come to the table with that uniform understanding of where we're starting from. And so I just have a, a quote that I thought was really great from a CTO that we worked with. Um, and, and basically, he's kind of articulating what I've just said. Uh, I probably could have just put his quote up first and saved us all a lot of time uh, by describing all that and, said, and, and uh, told you what, what he already knew, and that's this. If we have a foundation of a common vocabulary and we level set that across cross-functional teams, we're breaking down those silos. And now everyone's agreeing to a common language and everyone is agreeing to expectations and now everybody knows what everybody's going to uh, uh, deliver on. The bottom line is this, words matter, they do. And to succeed as a team, we need to create a common vocabulary. Otherwise, we're gonna be speaking different languages with each other and it's going to be very, very frustrating, and we're just not going to get the traction we hope to get. And there's nobody's, nobody's really at fault for that, but unless we level set, we'll continue to come to the table with our different frames of references and our different knowledge bases. 
Okay, third challenge. We're halfway there. Uh, organizational alignment. Where does one role start? Where does it stop? How do we know who should be doing what? Uh, and do we all have agreement on that? And so what I want you to do is I want you to think about resource planning and allocation. Uh, it's really, really hard to know whether or not you've aligned your resources correctly for that work that needs to be done if you don't know where you are to start. So when you think about tackling organizational alignment, the first thing that I want you to think about doing is I want you to sit down and I want you to review your current resource allocation. Then I want you to look at what you want your desired resource allocation to be. And then I want you to make sure that you have clarity of knowledge and agreement on ownership for each one of those pieces of work that needs to be done. And so I'm going to take you back to the, the pragmatic framework simply because it's easy. We just built that uh, on the last challenge, and so we're just going to continue to build on that. And so maybe the review, reviewing your current resource allocation looks something like this. You call a meeting. And you say, you know, maybe you have cross-functional rep representation, maybe you've got your entire executive team there, and you start having a conversation that sounds something like this. Well, who's working on the stuff in the lower left-hand corner? And maybe somebody from product management raises their hand, and they circle it in yellow. And they say, well, we've got those activities. We're doing that. And then somebody from marketing communications raises their hands in the lower right-hand corner, and they say, well, we've got these things in that orange bubble. And then somebody from uh, product management raises their hand again, and they say, um, you know, we've got some stuff in the blue circle here, and somebody in a strategy uh, management role says, and we're kind of focused on this green stuff right here. And you start to get a sense for what your current resource allocation is. Who's working on what today? And then you're going to stand back, and you're going to look at that, and you're going to have a big aha moment. You're going to have a big aha moment because the reality of the situation is this. You're going to likely find that you have multiple people stepping on top of each other. Looking at something like that green and blue circle on your screen, you can see we have lots of people doing the same exact thing. Is that right? Is that confusing? Should we think about reallocating those resources? And then you might also recognize that you have entire activities that nobody's doing. Understanding our market problem, managing our product portfolio. Wow, we didn't even realize it, but nobody's doing that. And so now that we understand what our current resource allocation is, we can move in to a conversation about what we want our desired resource allocation to be. And this is an actual example of an actual client that I worked with really recently. So we went through the activity that I showed you previously where we articulated or we looked at who was doing what today, so their current resource allocation. And just like the previous slide indicated, they had people overlapping one another. Uh, they had work that just simply wasn't getting done. And so what we needed to do is we needed to say, okay, what do we want our desired resource allocation to be? And then let's allocate ownership for each one of those activities to a different functional group within the business. And I know it's a little bit hard to, to see, um, but what we have is in the upper right-hand corner, 
we have different functional groups. So product management is yellow, product marketing is uh, red, sales operations is turquoise blue, we got, uh, we got sales engineering orange, finance, Marcom, pink and purple. And we said, now that we know who's doing what, who do we want to be doing what? And we spent a half a day talking it out and coming up with an assignment as to which functional part of the organization actually owns each one of those activities. Who's the person who's accountable for each one of those activities? Aha, now all of a sudden this company has organizational alignment because they know when it's a question related to market problems, they're gonna go see the product management team because product management team owns that activity. We're no longer stepping on top of each other and we're no longer in a position where work simply isn't getting done. Okay, here we are, last item, prioritization of clarity. So the last thing we need to do to fix our dysfunctional team is we need to get clarity around the work that needs to be done. What should be at the top of the list? What should be at the bottom of the list? So what I want you to do is I want you to think about performing what we would call a gap analysis. A gap analysis is gonna help us establish our priorities because it's gonna identify critical needs, it's gonna enable your action plan, it's gonna inform those people who own each one of those activities that we just articulated in the last section, uh, and it's gonna put them into a position where they can start acting against those activities in a rational way that's prioritized correctly for the business. And the way that we're gonna do this is uh, we're gonna answer two key questions. We're gonna answer how important is it and how well are we doing it to refer, uh, to reveal those gaps. In other words, it's gonna look a little something like this. I've taken that framework and now I've gone through every single activity on the framework. And I've said on a scale of one to five, low to high, how important is the activity? I ranked it. And then I asked the question, okay, now how well are we doing against that activity? Low to high, one to five. And then depending on how you answer those two questions, you're gonna get a delta. You're gonna subtract those numbers out. And the bigger the delta, the bigger the gap, the higher the priority. So if you look in the upper left-hand corner, we've got market problems. And you'll see in this particular client example, they said, how important is market problems? Well, it's really, really important. I'm happy to see that they ranked it a five, by the way, because uh, that takes us back to the first challenge we were trying to tackle. Five, super important. Uh-oh, we happen to be one of those organizations that realizes we aren't really good at it. We haven't been doing well. So they gave themselves a one. And so that was a big delta. That was the biggest delta you could get. That box is red. They found other things they were doing really effectively, right? Like use scenarios. They gave themselves a three, three on that scale of one to five. So that box is green. Well, guess what? I'm not gonna really worry about spending a lot of time perfecting use scenarios in my organization right now because we're okay there. I'd rather spend my time on the red boxes, close those gaps, do another gap analysis, pick the next set of red boxes, so forth and so on. I'm gonna put those yellow boxes on my radar as well. And so this is another really effective tool that can help uh, tackle that fourth challenge that we uh, need, to, need to solve for, and that is how to get clarity around our prioritization. All right, I wanna make sure we leave a lot of uh, time for questions here.
and so I just want to wrap up with a few uh, final thoughts, and then I have uh, something fun for you here at the end of this uh, session today. So here it is. Um, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, the need to have a really, really effective team is at the base of everything we do. Um, but it's hard, right? It's not complex, but it's hard. And I've found that the four key challenges are the ones we need to tackle. And if we tackle these, I think it's going to get you nearly all the way there of solving the problem of a dysfunctional team and creating a high-performing team. And that is we want to make sure that we're all working together to fulfill a shared future based on solving a problem that comes from the marketplace not from inside our organization. Uh, I want to make sure that we're using a common vocabulary, so we're not talking past each other, we're talking with each other. And I want that common vocabulary to be above our specialty vocabularies within our individual silos so we don't reinforce staying within our silos and we come up out of those groups and we start to work cross-functionally. I want to leverage some sort of blueprint or framework to do that uh, discussion of where are our resources currently allocated versus where we want them to be allocated. And then let's make sure we're all on the same page about who owns the work that needs to be done. And then let's simply prioritize the work that needs to be done by focusing on those items that have the biggest gap. In other words, those things are the most important where we're just not as effective at performing them today, where we have the greatest deficiencies. Um, and so that's what I have to share with you today. Uh, one thing I want you to know is uh, on this screen you'll see a, a URL to download a survival guide that walks you through everything that I've covered in today's presentation. So you get a nice little fun how-to guide, uh, and this is also, we're going to also email this link out to you in the webinar follow-up. Uh, and with that, I'm going to open it up for Q&A. All right, Kirsten, we have a ton, a ton, a ton of great questions. So, one of the first questions comes from a good friend of ours in Minnesota, Chad. He says, um, he's done the gap analysis a number of times with clients um, and his own teams, and one of the things he's struggled with is everybody, uh, it's the prioritization piece, like the importance. Everything feels like a five and four. Rarely does someone go, eh, that part doesn't really matter. So, do you have any tips on helping teams prioritize importance, like breaking down what could be a five, four, three, two, or one? Yeah, so first of all, let me just say this, you're not alone. Um, I work with lots of organizations, and I'm going to tell you, almost without exception, the first time I go through a gap analysis, it's a crime scene, right? And every, we got 32 out of 37 boxes red. And, um, you know, that's, that's great to me. And the reason that that's great is it reveals a different problem, which is, Everything can't be a number one, right? We cannot have everything be the highest priority and tackle it equally and effectively. And so what I love is when your, your gap analysis comes back as a crime scene, it forces a conversation. It forces a conversation that says, okay, but what's really the most important? Now, one of the tools or the techniques that I like to use to drive that conversation, so it's not uncommon to have to do a second or a third pass at that first gap analysis to come to some agreement as an organization. But this isn't a static activity. We're going to do this at a regular basis and a regular cadence. So one thing I like to do is I like to uh, uh, grab a page out of Agile 
And I like to use a concept similar to story pointing, where I hand everybody who comes in the room uh, five sheets of paper with a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five on the five sheets of paper. And the first thing I do is I ask everybody how important it is. And just like we do story pointing in Agile, everybody holds up their numbered piece of paper. Well, if everybody in the room has a five, then we probably have agreement there. But if somebody has a two and somebody has a five, that's a real indicator to me that that's a box we should have a deeper conversation on. And then I do the same thing when I ask how important is the activity. So I find very often if you have people use that number coding system on a piece of paper, it reveals the gap within the gap. In other words, it, it reveals the disparity within the group that can help drive down to getting to a manageable number of priorities. Ideally, I would like to see you try to tackle no more than three to five gaps on a, on a quarterly or six-month basis to be realistic. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I've tackled that in my past. Excellent. All right, we have lots of questions about who owns this activity, this gap analysis, right? Inside an organization, Kirsten, who should drive this, this effort? Um, well, gosh, I feel like this is a loaded question. Um, I would ideally say your marketing organization, and when I say marketing, I'm using that, um, that, that um, functional term of marketing as in, the part of the organization that owns understanding the customer problems that you're solving, owns building the product and getting the product to market successfully. So very often sometimes we will break that into a product management and a product marketing role. Um, so I would say somewhere within that organization, I would like to see that team drive this. And the reason that I would like to see that team drive this is um, we're the group that's responsible for building and delivering products to the marketplace. And these are the activities that are necessary for building and delivering products to the marketplace. And so we should own the conversation in the organization. It's our responsibility as product leaders, uh, as marketing leaders, to ensure that all this work is done so we have a successful solution in the marketplace. And so as a default, I would expect that we would go ahead and lead that. Now, to me, that's kind of the perfect answer, right? But I also know there's reality on the table. I'm more passionate about the fact that you actually come together and have this conversation as a team. Um, and if you feel like you need to have somebody else lead it, fine, so be it. But at least start the dialogue within the organization. And ideally, for me, it's that, that product leadership, marketing leadership that's going to own doing this activity. So then we have several on the follow-up question on that is uh, going back to your herding cats analogy. How does one, say you're a product manager and you want to lead this initiative, how does one herd the cats when some of these people are outside of your organization and maybe directors or VPs above you who would sit with this conversation? Um, well, you can always have us come in and help facilitate the session. That's always <laughs> helpful. Uh, <laughs> it takes the heat off of you, that's for sure. Um, so. Ideally, so here's a couple of things I want you to think about. In an ideal world, so I'm going to I'm going to answer this question from the perspective of the ideal to you know get get done what you can. In the ideal world, I would I would love to see product leadership drive this conversation as an ex, at an executive level with cross-functional representation at every seat at the table. So if you go back and you look at that example that I gave you where I had the poster on the wall, 
That was a session that I ran with an entire executive team. So it had the person who ran marketing, product, sales, finance, human resources. Everybody was in that room together. Because if your leadership can get on the same page there, the trickle down into the organization is really, really effective. If you can't do that, step it down and do it in your universe, right? There's no reason why you can't do a gap analysis in your individual role. And it's a really effective management tool because if you don't have buy-in at that executive level, think about it. Sit down at your desk, think about the things that you own, think about where your gaps are. Now when your boss asks you what you're gonna accomplish in the next 90 days, you can take them in that heat map. And you can say, well, I own these 10 boxes and these 10 boxes have these three priorities because they're the biggest gap. That's what I'm gonna focus on for the next 90 days. And so you can drive the conversation up in your organization, just like you can have the uh, conversation trickle down from a management perspective. I think that's a really interesting point, Kirsten, that um, you know, if you can, ideally it goes across the organization, but like it's not an, uh, don't let that be a block from moving forward. You can go as small as your universe allows to get this started. And if nothing else, you'll demonstrate the power of this. And hopefully through that, it goes wider in the organization. 100%. And it really, it changes the entire nature of the conversation with your manager because if you tell them you're going to work on those three boxes for 90 days and then, you know, a month later they come in and they give you a bunch of random stuff to do, you can remind them that's not what you agreed to 45 days ago. Are you asking for a course correction? In which case those original things aren't going to get done. And so it just helps produce an artifact that throttles that conversation in a much more productive way as an organization. So many great questions. Uh, all right, so Janet asks, are there areas that are typically the largest gaps for the most companies in the, in the ones of these that you have done? I can honestly say I don't think I've ever worked with an organization that doesn't have market problems as a red box. Um, so that's always a big gap. And then I will say the, the gaps vary depending on where an organization is in its life cycle and where your products are in the life cycle because the gap analysis will um, bend to where you are in the things that are in order of importance for your organization. In other words, if you've got a mature product that you're really just about promoting very heavily in the marketplace, chances are pretty good that you're focused on what I would call kind of those lower right-hand activities where you're talking to the market. And that's all about talking to the market. So, you know, maybe you're even getting ready to sunset that particular product. So market problems, I hate to say it, but isn't probably as important there or win-loss analysis isn't as important there because you're just doing some promotional activities while you go through a sunset. If you are a brand new company or a startup or you've got a new, new product that you're trying to introduce to the market, you better be living hard and fast in that market problems box. Because if you don't nail those requirements, you're going to set yourself up for being one of those 92% of those startups that fell within the first three years. And so there really is going to be a level of variability that I see based on organization's life cycle or product's life cycle. So we have another question. Someone mentions that in your example, the poster is very neat, right? There's one post-it note per box. And uh, that's not always the case, as we know, going through these exercises. So what do you recommend if there's a box during this exercise that, that two or more people feel that they own? 
I'm shocked at the suggestion that that would happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so so truth serum, moment of truth, circle of trust with folks on the webinar. I had a different copy, a different poster I really wanted to use, and it actually had a lot of boxes that had three colors per box and some that had five colors per box, but I felt like that wouldn't be the best example for the webinar today. And so you're right, that happens, that's a reality. Um, I don't mind. All that means is that you now as an organization have a higher degree of overhead to really understand. If you've got two people living in a box, you have clarity of what the delineation is. So I'll give you an example of the, the, the multicolored sticky note poster that I really wanted to include in today's deck. That happened to be an organization that I worked with that had three massive, it's a billion dollar company. They have three massive lines of business. They have three product leaders over those lines of business. And what they wanted to do was have one ownership map for the entire organization, but one person can own each one of those boxes because each one of those lines of businesses, it's like they're their own business. And so each one where they all had the job or the role, there were three colors of sticky notes in each one of those boxes. I was okay with that because it's clearly delineated by the product portfolio under each and every one of those umbrellas. But what's really cool now is each and every one of those people are gonna be addressing the work in a uniform way. And so I don't necessarily mind having multiple colors in boxes, as long as you have an abundance of clarity of where the start and the stop for each one of the roles in that box is. Awesome. All right, so we have a lot of questions about the shared vocabulary. And how do you actually start to roll that out within the organization? How do you start the glossary? How do you start that movement? Um, you know, and some of them are talking about organizations have been using certain terms differently or within for 20 plus years. What would be some advice there? Well, so the first thing I'm going to say is the person on the phone or the question who said, wie geht's to me? I'm going to say, es geht mir gut, vielen Dank. I'm doing well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the key is, first of all, you have to come to an agreement as to what the, the words are that you're gonna be using. Um, so if I, I go back to the pragmatic marketing framework, just because it's neat um, and uh, uh, clear, uh, there's 37 words on that framework, right? I don't care what words you use, but that's a really good starting point. That's a great glossary, right? So write down all the 37 words associated with the activities that you need to perform to build and deliver your build, deliver and support your products in the marketplace, and then come to a uniform agreement as to what each one of those activities are. Um, again, Phil, the the framework. I'm not trying to push the framework because I work for Pragmatic Marketing. It's just neat and easy, and the work's already done for you. So start with those 37 activities uh, in the survival guide. Uh, correct me, Rebecca. Is there a definition for the activities in the survival guide? Uh, I'm not positive it's in there. If not, we do have another sheet. We'll make sure that's linked in the email as well. Perfect. So we'll give you a glossary to start. We'll give you a starter kit glossary, and then you can work from there. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So you've done the gap analysis. You see where the areas of big opportunity exist. How do we go from that's true, we know the problem, to let's go tackle the problem and make it better? Oh, well, so... If you think about that spectrum that I started with when I talked about strategy to execution, 
all right, so now you understand the problem that you're going to solve. What are you going to do with it? Well, then you're going to move towards executing against it, right? You're going to take that market data. You're going to start to analyze it. You're going to start to refine it, and you're going to start to uh, put the problems that you want to solve into buckets of problems that need to be solved, um, and then you're going to work against those buckets of problems. So the, ter the term, the, the technical term for this is called affinity mapping. Affinity mapping is, is basically where we go into the market, we gather individual data points, we gather individual uh, pieces of input, individual pieces of market data, and then we start to look for common themes, common problems, common goals that need to be achieved and solved. And we're going to put all of those like problems into buckets because they're more manageable as buckets of problems versus individual problems at a time. And then we're going to start to rank order those groups of problems. And then that's what we're going to start to build our products from. Excellent. All right. A question on the shared feature, the feature story. Do you recommend that that feature story is feature story by product, feature story across the portfolio, or is the future vision story bigger than either of those? Uh, I, I, it's bigger than either of those. Your, your future, your shared future is your reason for existing as an organization. Um, it is, it is your true north. It's your compass. Uh, you know, the example that I like to use is, um, at one point in my career, I worked with, um, education technology, and we at one point had a shared future statement or a vision statement that was all about enterprise systems and features and technologies. It was very product-focused. And when we allowed our vision statement to be very product, feature, functionality, technology-focused, uh, we realized it was really inward-focused. We were only talking about ourselves. We were kind of enamored with ourselves and enamored with our products and enamored with our technologies. But the students, the children who we were helping with our products in an education technology environment, they didn't care. They didn't care about our platforms or anything like that. And so we realized we had to recalibrate our vision statement, our shared future, and we created a shared future statement that was centered around unleashing the power of potential within children. And that changed the entire nature of the conversation within our organization because we now realize those products, they're just a means to an end to fulfilling that. But what we're really trying to do is come together in an organization and change the life of a child. And so when I talk about that shared future, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the core essence of being and the core reason why you exist as an organization. And if they can't get that from above, they should do what? Uh, there's no reason that you can't articulate that sitting at your desk and socialize that upward and say, you know, here's what I, I take as my sense for why we exist as an organization. Is my understanding clear? Awesome. These, right. there, there's no, every conversation we're having, Rebecca, it's great if it comes from the top down. Uh, if it doesn't, that doesn't mean we're exempt from making it happen, right? And so these tools and techniques can also, actually also help you drive that from the bottom up. That's a great point, great point. All right, we've got a lot of other questions, but we're running out of time. So I think a couple things here. One, um, we've covered a lot today, Kirsten. So if you can think about, if you would tell people to do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would that be? And then I'm also going to invite you to do a podcast with me to talk about some of these other questions that we're getting into delving them a little bit more uh, deeply.
So does everybody on the webinar see what just happened there? I gave Rebecca an assignment <laughs> sending you out sending you a definition. So I gave uh, the head of marketing the assignment. So now she's giving me an assignment back that I'm going to come do a podcast with you, which is great. I look super forward to that. Um, and then just on so that, though, I did put a link to the definition in the chat box here so everyone can access it right away, but we'll also include that link um, in the email that goes out tomorrow. So, you know, I did my homework. Perfect. <laughs> great. Thank you. Um, okay. So the, for me, uh, I think the number here, – here's what I always like to say. We got to know who's doing the work, and we got to know why we're doing the work in the order of importance. And if you don't tackle those two things, you're not going to get traction because you're just going to have a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff in silos. And so we must come to some sort of agreement as to – agreement isn't the right word. We must come to an understanding and of who's actually working on what. We need to trust them to do that work, let them do their work. And then we need to have an understanding of what those priorities are. And we need to, to trust the people who are, who are prioritizing their work, that they are indeed putting the right stuff at the top of the list. Um, and so I know that was three things, ownership, prioritization, but really trust is important too. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Kirsten, for this great session. And thank you, everybody, who joined us today. Uh, don't forget to join us next month on August 14th when John Torrens will teach us all how to speak with confidence and build presentations and pitches that actually work. Uh, both Kirsten and I saw John speak uh, last year at the Business of Software, and it's going to be a great presentation. He uh, has great points. He's got great information to share, and he just does it highly entertaining. So, um, yeah, he's great. Yeah. He's super fun. Not that you work great, Kirsten. So. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Sure. All right. So that does it for today's edition of Pragmatic Live. We're going to send out all those links we talked about today, links to the slides, to the survival guide, and to the definitions. Feel absolutely free to contact either Kirsten or I if you have any follow-up questions about this. We're always happy to help. 